might not want to report it. <laughs> oh, Brandon's not here for a reason, you know. Morning, everyone. Morning. Thank you, Noah. Thank you for coming all the way from Jacksonville. Well, um, it is good to be back up here, although it is somewhat nerve-wracking, um, especially with Brandon not around to uh, keep me in the guardrails. So I'll have to rely on some of the other gentlemen if I start going a little crazy. Um, but before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would like to thank you this morning for this opportunity to share this passage with my brothers and sisters today. Lord, thank you for introducing this piece of history to me many years ago, and thank you for showing me even more this year. I ask that my words will be clear and that the people hearing today can understand what I have to share. And Lord, I trust that in this message, the majesty of you will be exalted, because this is all about you, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so the good news this morning is that we will be spending pretty much our time exclusively in Ezekiel 26. Last time I was up here, I was a little bit all over the place trying to set the stage, and today will be a little more focused. I will cheat a little bit, but it shouldn't be too bad. Um, for those of you that were here a few weeks ago, um, you should remember that we had a very cursory look at verses 1 to 6. We didn't really look at the verses all that much, um, and we'll revisit those in more detail today. Um, so if you could please join me and turn to Ezekiel chapter 26. I'll read verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, Ezekiel 26, 1 through 14. Now in the eleventh year, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken, it has opened to me. I shall be filled, now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also, her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army. He will slay your daughters on the mainland with the sword, and he will make siege walls against you, cast up a ramp against you, and raise up a large shield against you. The blow of his battering rams he will direct against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, 
The dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that is breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise. Break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. So I will silence the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. That is the reading for this morning, the passage we're looking at. But before we jump in, we need to do some quick, and I promise very quick, revision. If you recall, the book of Ezekiel deals a lot with God's glory and the failure of Israel to be a light to the nations. The failure culminated in the Lord afflicting Israel with the curses from Deuteronomy 28. These curses would ultimately result in the destruction of both Jerusalem and the temple and the physical deportation of Israel to Babylon in 586 BC. The Lord announces the beginning of the 18-month siege against Jerusalem in late 589 or early 588 BC. This is the same time that our passage is written. Our passage is part of a group of judgments against the seven nations bordering Israel. Each of the seven nations is judged for different moral reasons, but the primary reason for these judgments is given quite simply and clearly by the Lord. He says six times that he is judging them so that, quote, they will know that I am the Lord. In my previous message on this chapter, we touched on a few ideas about what it means, I am the Lord. Some facets of that statement include, but are not limited to, one, when the Lord speaks, things happen according to his timing. Secondly, the Lord is in control of history and all the nations, and today we will expand that to individuals too. He cannot be circumvented, avoided, or thwarted. Thirdly, he has unchanging moral expectations on the nations, not just Israel. He is true to his word, fourthly. His statements are trustworthy, as today hopefully will emphasize. Fifth, he has a plan and he is working it out according to his good pleasure. Six, he judges all nations impartially. And seventh, I'll add another one that I think is very implicit in his statement. He wants the nations, not just Israel, to actually know that he is there and who he is. This is a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. He wants to be known, and he will be known. I'm sure there's a lot more that can be said about the Lord wanting the nations to know that he is the Lord. And I'm sure there is much fruitful meditation that can be done on this topic. But in short, the Lord wants the nations, and by extension us, to know just how much he is the Supreme One, far beyond what we normally conceive him to be. And this now brings us to our short passage today. The first six verses, 
represent a summary of what is to follow, sort of overarching statement of the overall judgment against Tyre. And that judgment encompasses three chapters. This morning, we're going to look at what the Lord says he's going to do, and then we're going to see how he does it. I hope this brief history lesson, being the accountant, I have to do a little bit of a history lesson, um, will be enlightening, but also encouraging as to just how much precision, subtlety, and beauty this shows us about the Lord God. So let's get started in verse 1. If you'll turn to your Bibles, we'll just take this kind of verse by verse and just add some commentary as we go. So verse 1, Now in the eleventh year, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... So verse 1 sets the date of the oracle. The date, as I indicated previously, is late December 589 or January 588 B.C., one commentator, or more than one commentator, actually believes that the exact date is December 25th, 589. So, 589 years before Christmas. Um, not that Jesus was born on the 25th. But um, I don't know if that's correct or not. But what it does clearly indicate is that we are in recorded human history. The oracle is based in space and time and can be tested. Or put another way, God is not a spiritual concept of feeling. He is a person that acts in history, in our world, in our lives. He is real and has tangible impacts in our reality. I think we sometimes forget this. Verse 2, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken, it has opened to me, I shall be filled, now that she is laid waste. A few comments here. The Lord uses the phrase, son of man, a great deal in Ezekiel, and also with Ezekiel's contemporary Daniel. This was a favorite phrase of our Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. And if you recall, Ezekiel, together with Jeremiah, Ezekiel's other contemporary, both announce the promise of a new covenant which is instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ about 600 years later. That's just as an aside. Back to the verse, the destruction of Jerusalem is implicitly prophesied. Remember, this occurs 18 months prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and is fulfilled months later. As previously mentioned, this verse also highlights the reason for the judgment. Tyre gleefully is going to celebrate the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a competing trade, a center of trade and commerce, and Tyre, already rich and powerful, greedily wanted more. The void in the trade routes created by the destruction of Jerusalem would give Tyre a great economic opportunity. The city-state greedily licks its chops in anticipation of this. Verse 3, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. So here is our first clue into the how the Lord is going to punish Tyre. The Lord starts off with a simple, straightforward, and possibly innocuous sounding statement, I am against you. 
this opening salvo launches three chapters of judgment as the Lord unveils more of the plan to come. But our first clue is the ironic metaphor of the Lord using many nations to crash against the seafaring nations, like the sea brings up its waves. If you remember, Tyre is the capital of the Phoenician Empire, which is a sea-trading nation. These nations will come up building, swelling, some large, some small, but relentlessly smashing against the city. Tyre may be able to navigate the seas of the Mediterranean, but can she navigate the, sea, the Lord's sea of judgment? Is the Lord really powerful enough to achieve this? Moving on to verse 4 and 5. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her degree from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she will become spoil for the nation. Verse 4 provides some more prophetic clarity as to what to expect in this big picture overview. It's serious. The nations will destroy the city walls and towers, and the city will be nothing more than a bare rock. Tyre's immense riches will become the spoil of the nations. Verse 6. Also, her daughters who are in the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. This verse rounds out the overall summary of the judgment to come. Some clarification is needed here. Some translations use the word daughters and others villages. The closer translation is daughters, but it's generally accepted that this refers to the satellite villages. So you have the capital city on the coast, and then around it you have all these villages that are the children of the capital, with the the capital being the mother city. It's also interesting to point out that this is directed at the mainland villages. Just park that thought. We'll come back to that in a bit. This then finishes the Lord's introduction to the future fate of Tyre. The Tyrians know why they are being judged and should expect the capital city and the surrounding district towns to be destroyed. In addition, the city will be a bald rock signifying complete destruction, and probably, most importantly to the Tyrians, their wealth will be given to others. The exact opposite of what they most heartily desire. And so that rounds the four clear assertions, rounds out the first four clear assertions from, from the overview. So shifting now to verses 7 through 14, these provide a bit more detail on how the Lord plans to do this. These verses expand and clarify on the first six verses. So let's see some more details. Verse 7, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings with horses chariots, cavalry, and a great army. The Lord is quite clear here. I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar. This has two implications from the Lord in the immediate context for Tyre. Just like I am in charge of the nations, I'm in charge of individuals, even great kings. Nebuchadnezzar is an instrument. He is a tool. He's being used. 
The judgment, secondly, the judgment will begin soon. It must commence before Nebuchadnezzar dies. Therefore, the timer has begun. It's not far off. The judgment will start imminently. Verses 8 and 9. He will slay your daughters on the mainland with the sword, and he will make siege walls against you. Cast up a ramp against you and raise up a large shield against you. The blow of his battering rams he will direct against your walls. And with his axes, he will break down your towers. Here the Lord clarifies that it is, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar who will be the first besieger of the city-state. And he will be the one that will tear down the city walls and towers. Moving on to verses 10 and 11. Because of the multitude of these horses, the dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots. When he enters your gates, as men enter a city that is breached, with the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. We learn from these verses that the army will be vast and that it will enter the city, state of Tyre. This will not be a peaceful affair. The language is vivid and indicative of a monumental military effort. Conversely, this highlights also the strength of Tyre. It was not the weak city. So far, things are pretty straightforward. So much so that one could say that Ezekiel could have guessed or surmised that Nebuchadnezzar would attack Tyre and the outcome would be obvious. In a skeptic's mind, it's not that impressive of a prophecy. But verse 12 is where things start to become interesting. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise, break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. Notice the shift from the he to the they from verses 8 and 11 to 12. The he is consistently referring back to Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 12, the Lord starts referring to they. One might assume that the they refers to vassal nations serving under Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, possibly the they are the allies of the Babylonians. And this could work, but there are problems. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city of Tyre, and secular history attests to this fact too. But he does not actually get the plunder or loot or treasure of Tyre. This creates a conundrum, and it's highlighted inside the book of Ezekiel itself. A few pages over, in Ezekiel 29, verses 18 to 19, the following is recorded. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for the labor that he had performed against it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off her wealth, Egypt's wealth, and capture her spoil and seize her plunder 
and it will be wages for his army. That passage comes from the judgment against Egypt. Remember, initially I indicated that there were judgments in one packet around the seven nations around Israel. That comes from the judgment against Egypt. But the key point here is that Nebuchadnezzar labored hard against Tyre, so much so heads went bald, but Nebuchadnezzar did not get his due wages. So how does that work? Secular history records that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Tyre for 13 years. 13 years of war. Let's put that in context with Afghanistan. But more, um, this says something about Nebuchadnezzar and his sheer willpower. But more importantly, it says something about the Lord. He can be a patient God who judges. Even in his anger, he does not rush to action like we sometimes do. If the Lord had wanted Tyre to fall quickly, it would have. But for his reasons, he kept the siege in place for 13 years. And I think we may be able to glean why in a few minutes' time. But back in Ezekiel 26, an obvious question arises. Why didn't Nebuchadnezzar get any plunder if he did raise the city? I mean, if you capture the city, won't you get the loot? But Ezekiel says he doesn't. You see the conundrum? The answer comes in the form of geography. Remember the daughters on the mainland? Tyre had another daughter. A daughter about half a mile away in the ocean. An island just off the coast of mainland Tyre. This island was initially used as a harbor for the seafaring nation. But over the 13 years of siege, the island was fortified, built, and by the time Nebuchadnezzar broke into the mainland capital, the wealth and seat of government had moved to the island, where Nebuchadnezzar could not go. Some believe that the Tyrians were in league with the Egyptians at this time too, which would then link back to handing Egypt over for judgment as well. Tyre did eventually surrender to Nebuchadnezzar politically, but he did not exact the ultimate price on the Tyrians. But this history now seems to contradict the prophecy in 26, right? Ezekiel 26, doesn't it? Tyre was meant to be plundered. Its loot is meant to be given away. Nebuchadnezzar has not fulfilled the prophecy fully. It's when these apparent contradictions come up, and this one is in the same book, that we should really stop and look a little more carefully. Clearly, there is a puzzle to be solved. Some careful review of the passage and thoughtful questions start to resolve this issue. First, note that in the opening summary from verses 1 to 6, who gets the plunder? The nations. And how will the Lord punish Tyre? The Lord bringing up nations like waves. Notice also that he or Nebuchadnezzar would tear down the walls and then 
they will tear down the walls. Presumably a second time. However, the they will do more. Look at verses 12 to 14 and see the additional expectations. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise. Break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. So I will silence the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. So the they will get the spoils. They will destroy the walls and houses again. They will throw your stones and your timbers into the water. And God will make Tyre a bare rock and Tyre will be built no more. History shows that Nebuchadnezzar did not perform any of the they activities. So the question hangs, who are they? Lebanon has a modern day Tyre today. Are we still waiting for some eschatological fulfillment of this in faith? Or is the prophecy inherently not precise and Nebuchadnezzar did enough to fulfill the intent of the prophecy? A cursory review of history will show that Tyre shows a continuous decline over the millennia. Repeated conquests and destructions, the Seleucids, the Romans, and even the Crusaders, to name some. But I think the key piece of history that we need to look at takes place around 332 BC, some 250 odd years later. Nebuchadnezzar, his empire long gone, has been replaced by the Medo-Persian or Persian Empire. Alexander the Great, the all-conquering Grecian general and king, is waging war with the Persian Empire. Sidon, Tyre's northern ally, has surrendered without a fight to Alexander. Alexander approaches Tyre, demanding surrender. Following their allies' lead, the Tyrians acknowledged Alexander's greatness and sent him gifts commensurate with the same level that Sidon gave, seeking a peaceable resolution with Alexander. All is going well for a peaceful resolution with Alexander. But there's a problem. The Tyrians had a temple to their god, Melkart, or Hercules. Now, Alexander wanted to make a sacrifice to the Tyrian god personally on the island with his army in the city. And the Tyrians just refused. And this enraged the narcissistic king. Immediately, he ordered the destruction of Tyre. But how do you invade a seafaring superpower on an island? I mean, Hitler tried and he failed. So how do you do it? Well, what Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do in 13 years, Alexander did within eight months. So what did he do? He simply built a causeway or a mole from the mainland to the island. The causeway was 200 feet wide, half a mile long, and up to 18 feet in depth in certain places. So he needs dirt, lots of dirt. 
and construction materials. And where did he get these supplies from? His engineers systematically start taking apart all the buildings and debris from the old mainland city of Tyre, and they start dumping the old city in the ocean, just as prophesied. They literally scrape the city into the ocean. It's not there today. It's in the ocean. Over the centuries, through the buildup of silt and earthquakes, the causeway has expanded, so much so that the island is now a peninsula on the coast of Lebanon. It's part of the mainland. But the point is that Monday Tyre is not the same site as the ancient city, which has literally been scraped off the face of the earth. Remember the prediction of the bald rock and the scraping of the city into the ocean. With the causeway built, Alexander breaches the new city walls, massacres thousands of troops, and by ancient record, sells 30,000 Tyrians into slavery. A possible fulfillment of Joel's prophecy against Tyre. This is from Joel 3. You don't need to turn there. But this is Joel prophesying against Tyre. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a distant nation. For the Lord has spoken. A quick review shows that all the elements of the prophecy spoken by the Lord have been fulfilled to the letter. It took hundreds of years, but it happened. Remember the 13 years? Not random. The time was there so that the island fortress could be built offshore. The island had to be there too. The new city had to be offshore so that there'd be a reason to scrape the old tire into the ocean. The control and the precision is quite incredible when you stop and think about it. But maybe Ezekiel got lucky again with Alexander showing up. So let's close this out. Recall that we are now in the intertestamentary period between the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament's closed, the New Testament has not come. So we have to rely on secular history. Alexander has taken Sidon, he's taken Tyre, he's heading southward in his, towards his conquest of Egypt, he's also taken Gaza. Who's next? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, too, has a temple, the rebuilt second temple, and this temple is the dwelling place of the Jewish God. And what does Alexander want to do? He wants to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, just like he did in Tyre. Now bear in mind, Alexander is a Gentile, and only priests can offer sacrifices in the temple. A unique subset of Jew. I just want to remind you that these events occur between the Old and the New Testament, and so there is no biblical evidence for these events. But secular history is very interesting, as we shall see. The following section is from Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian who witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So he was alive around AD 70. Josephus was a traveling prisoner of the Emperor Vespasian and Titus during their campaigns in Palestine in the first century. According to Josephus in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, book 11, chapter 8, there were many factions amongst the Jews 
This is back in Alexander's time, 300 BC. The Jewish high priest's brother was married to a foreigner. In order to maintain the perceived purity of the faith, the Jewish leaders, including the high priest, forced the brother to divorce his foreign wife. This sounds very similar to Nehemiah. Same thing was going on hundreds of years earlier. As such, the brother, married to the Gentile, took offense and together with his pagan father-in-law, actively curried favor with Alexander during his besiegement of Tyre and sought to cast the high priest in a very negative light. So much so that the brother was seeking the office of the high priesthood for himself and the father-in-law wanted to build a new temple in Samaria. And they're looking for Alexander's approval to do this. At the same time, Alexander is requesting troops from Jerusalem, from the high priest, to help him besiege Tyre. The high priest's principled response was that he had already sworn to the Persian king Darius that he would not provide military aid to Alexander's efforts on Tyre. This, unsurprisingly, infuriated Alexander. It's around this time that the brother's pagan father-in-law cunningly sends troops to aid Alexander in his besieging of Tyre and lays out his case against the high priest for the benefit of his son-in-law and daughter. So in short, the stage is set. Alexander, now finished with Tyre, is moving against Jerusalem. And I hope you see the similarities. Right? Alexander was so angry with Tyre, he built this causeway to destroy Tyre. Now he's angry with Jerusalem. I mean, what do you think is going to happen in Jerusalem? That's the question. So Alexander's moving against, moving against Jerusalem from Tyre. He's sided with the pagan faction. He's seeking to undermine the high priest in Jerusalem. And his army includes troops from Israel's ancient enemies, the Aramaeans, Sidonians, whoever you want to pick around them. This obviously creates a powder keg of pressure. Alexander is angry with the high priest. He has supporters chirping at him to punish Jerusalem. He wants to worship in the temple where the Jews will not allow it, similar to the Tyrians. It's pretty clear that Jerusalem is on the same trajectory as Tyre. So what does the high priest do? What would you do? The high priest calls for the inhabitants to make sacrifices to the Lord and presumably seek his face in prayer. The city complies with his request, and Josephus records that during the night, the high priest had a dream telling him what to do. The high priest wakes up, rejoices, and plans to follow the guidance from the dream. He waits for Alexander's arrival, and when he hears that Alexander is not far from the city, he starts to do what the dream indicated. So I ask you again, what would you do when an adversarial, antagonistic, and violent enemy is fast approaching you with evil intent? Well, the high priest puts on his high priestly robes, flings open the city gates, and marches out with a multitude of citizens and priests to meet Alexander on the road. Josephus records 
that the army could see Jerusalem and the temple, and they were fully expecting to plunder the city and torture the high priest. Imagine their shock when the exact opposite happens. Alexander the king approaches the high priest. The high priest in his mitre, he's got his purple and scarlet clothing on, and Josephus records, and this is a direct quote from, from Josephus. Alexander approached by himself and adored that name. This is the name of the Lord embroidered on the priest's dress, his robes. And first saluted the high priest. The Jews also did also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and encompass him about. Whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done and supposed him disordered in his mind, or insane, as we would say today. However, Parmenia, one of Alexander's generals, alone went up to him, Alexander, and asked him how it came to pass that when all the other nations that he had conquered adored him, meaning Alexander, why is he adoring the high priest of the Jews? And remember, I mean, as an aside, Alexander thought he was a god. I mean, it's, he, he, he's a very interesting character. Um, so he would not want to worship or adore other people. Um, to whom Alexander replied, I did not adore him, the high priest, but that God who hath honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit or clothing, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, in other words, invade the Persian Empire, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither, for that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Whence it is that, having seen no other in that habit, and now seeing this person in it, and remembering that vision, the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct, and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians, and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. So in short, he has this dream before he invades Persia, where he sees the Jewish high priest telling him to invade Persia, which is why he's winning. Now, it's not biblical, okay, but it is secular. It's, it's in Josephus. You can go look it up. It's right there. So, so what happens next? Alexander gave, quote, the high priest his right hand, and the priests ran along by him, and he came into the city. And when he went up into the temple... He offered sacrifice to God, and here's the key point, according to the high priest's direction, and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. There is more in, in Josephus here that you should go and read, because he actually is totally biased towards the Jews. Like They get exemption from taxes. There's just, it, 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 it's unbelievable what he actually does. Like He just lets them do their own thing. Um, it's amazing. But at this point, I need to pivot 
and mention that this piece of history is seen by many as the fulfillment of the prophecy in early Zechariah 9, some 200 years earlier. Zechariah 9 talks of a worldly king who conquers and plunders Sidon, Tyre, and Gaza, but spares Jerusalem and acts as a governor in Israel. Sound familiar? In Zechariah 9, Alexander the Great, in his arrogance and narcissism, stands in stark contrast to the Jewish king who would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. So when we have the triumphal entry with Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey, that's fulfillment of the Zechariah 9 prophecy, which is comparing that Jewish king to Alexander the Great. That's what's going on there. Even with a cursory look at Alexander this morning, we can already see his short temper and his willfulness in contrast to our Lord's patience and submission. Tale of two very different kings. That's a different sermon, but I would ask you to consider the contrast in the character between our King Jesus in his humility and Alexander the Great. Anyway, back to Josephus. He rounds out Alexander's interaction with the Jewish priesthood as follows. This is now a direct quote from Josephus. And when the book of Daniel was shown him, that's Alexander, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, Alexander supposed that he himself was the person intended. Now that brings us full circle back to Ezekiel's contemporary Daniel some 250 years earlier. Seems fairly obvious that the reference is to Daniel, in Daniel is to Daniel 8. In Daniel 8, Daniel receives a prophetic vision of the future of history spanning hundreds and hundreds of years. The interpretation is then also given in Daniel 8. I think it's easiest to work this backwards and start with the interpretation. So please feel free to turn to Daniel 8. And we'll pick it up in Daniel 8, 20 and 21. So this is from now back in Scripture. This is Daniel. Daniel 8, verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire succeeded the Babylonian Empire famously recorded in Daniel's finger on the wall with Belteshazzar. This is the dominant empire at the time of the rise of Alexander. Darius was the king of this empire and Alexander's chief adversary. So let's see what the prophecy says about the ram and the goat. So two horns, two kings, Medes, Persian, become one Persian. The goat is Greece, the horn is Alexander. That's clear from the interpretation. So now if we go to Daniel 8, verses 3 through 8, and I'm going to put the interpretations in so it makes a little more sense, okay? Then I lifted my eyes, it's Daniel speaking, and behold, 
a nation which had two horns, this is Medes and Persia, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. The Persian Empire was dominant over the Mede Empire, with the longer one coming up last, hence becoming the Persian Empire. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, southward, and no beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So the Persian Empire is going to expand. Very clear. That's what it's saying. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west. Now that's Greece. The goat is Greece. Over the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. So that highlights the speed at which he's moving. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. That's the first king. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. We've already seen that Alexander the Great had quite a temper. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. In other words, destroying the Medo-Persian Empire. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. So, you know, if you look at history, Alexander conquered the Persian Empire very quickly. I mean, his empire went from Greece all the way to India and Egypt. I mean, it's a massive, massive empire. And he, he died at like 35, I think, something like that. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. This fits with what we know of Alexander. He thought he was a god. But as soon as he was mighty the large horn was broken, which means he died. Alexander died young. They think it's some form, I think, of liver disease, probably from overconsumption of alcohol. Um, and in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So the horn represents kingdom kings. So Alexander is replaced with four kings. So... In short, the two rams, the, the ram's two horns represent Medes and Persians. Notice that the Medo-Persian Empire expands and is large. Then the goat, which is Greece, shows up and dominates and subdues them. But the goat only has one horn, which is later interpreted to be the first king of the Grecian Empire, or Alexander the Great. After the victory, what happens? The goat, the goat exalts himself greatly. But as soon as he does this, and he's all conquering, he's broken or killed. And he's replaced with four new leaders. There's a lot more going on in this prophecy that ties incredibly closely to the post-Alexander period of the four new kings. Basically, Alexander's empire got broken up between his four main generals. And then Daniel goes into this very detailed explanation of all the political intrigue between these generals. It's down to like, you know, this one's daughter married, that one's son, and so on and so on. It's very, very detailed. Um, so, you know, I encourage you to get a decent commentary and read that and see if you can keep track of all the political intrigues. Um, very, very in-depth. But that's 250 years earlier. So what's my point? I think it's simply this. When we talk about God being in charge, He truly is in charge, and to a degree of complexity, interconnectedness, and precision that we sometimes cannot grasp. Joel, Daniel, Ezekiel, 
and Zechariah, all from different times and physical places, had specific yet independent prophecies about Alexander and what he did. Ezekiel and Joel were more indirect, while Daniel and Zechariah are more clear. But more than that, you have to think this through. Who put the island off the coast in the first place? Why did Nebuchadnezzar have to siege for 13 years? Why did the earthquakes and the currents turn the island into a peninsula? There's no reason to rebuild the old city if you've got a new city somewhere else that's still connected to the mainland. There's no temptation to go back. But he controls the tides and the earthquakes. There's a big earthquake that sunk off the island at one point. That The new tire, the old new tire, is under, under ocean as well. When you stop and carefully reflect on just how everything is first set up, then outlined, and then finally played out, it shows us today that he truly is the Lord. And for us today, when we sometimes feel that the world is out of control and chaotic, we need to remember and know, not feel, but know that he is the Lord and he is in charge.